Hello and welcome to another episode of Covenant and Conversation with me, Rabbi Sachs. In each new episode, we'll explore a Jewish idea from the Hebrew Bible based on the Torah reading of the week. Parashat Bo, Against Their Gods. The ninth plague, darkness, comes shrouded in a darkness of its own. What is this plague doing here? It seems out of sequence. Thus far, there have been eight plagues, and they've become steady, steadily, inexorably more serious. The first two, the Nile turning blood red and the infestation of frogs, seem more like omens than anything else. The third and fourth, gnats and flies, cause discomfort, not crisis. The fifth, the plague that killed livestock, affected animals, not human beings. The sixth, boils, was again a discomfort, but a serious one, no longer an external nuisance, but a bodily affliction. The seventh and eighth, hail and locusts, destroyed the Egyptian grain. So with the loss of grain added to the loss of livestock in the fifth plague, there was no food. Still to come was the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, in retribution for Pharaoh's murder of Israelite children. It would be this that eventually broke Pharaoh's resolve. So we'd expect the ninth plague to be very serious indeed, something that threatened, even if not immediately, take human life. Instead, we read what seems like an anticlimax. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. Moses did stretch out his hand and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Darkness is a nuisance, but no more. The phrase, a darkness that can be felt, suggests what happened. It was a chamsin, a sandstorm of a kind not unfamiliar in Egypt, which can last for several days, producing sand and dust-filled air that obliterates the light of the sun. A chamsin is usually produced by a southern wind that blows into Egypt from the Sahara Desert. The worst sandstorm is usually the first of the season in March. This fits the dating of the plague, which happened shortly before the death of the firstborn on Pesach. So the ninth plague was doubtless unusual in its intensity, but it wasn't an event of a kind wholly unknown to the Egyptians then or now. So why then does it figure in a plague narrative immediately prior to the climax? Why didn't it happen nearer the beginning as one of the less severe plagues? The answer lies in a line from Dayenu, the song we sang as part of the Haggadah. If God had executed judgment against them, the Egyptians, but hadn't done so against their gods, it would have been sufficient. Twice the Torah itself refers to this dimension of the plagues. God says, I will pass through Egypt on that night and I'll kill every firstborn in Egypt. I will perform an act of judgment against all the gods of Egypt. I alone am God. So, uh, and uh, the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn struck down by the Lord, and against their gods, the Lord had executed judgment. What the Torah is telling us is that not all the plagues were directed in the first instance against the Egyptians. 
Some were directed against things they worshipped as gods. That's actually the case in the first two plagues. The Nile was personified in ancient Egypt as the god Hapi and was worshipped as the source of fertility in an otherwise desert region. Offerings were made to it at times of inundation and the inundations themselves were attributed to one of the major Egyptian deities, Osiris. The plague of frogs would have been associated by the Egyptians with Hect, the goddess who was believed to attend births as a midwife and who was depicted as a woman with the head of a frog. The plagues were not only intended to punish Pharaoh and his people for their mistreatment of the Israelites, but also to show them the powerlessness of the gods in which they believed. What is at stake in this confrontation is the difference between myth, in which gods are powers to be tamed or manipulated, and biblical monotheism in which ethics, justice, compassion, human dignity, constitute the meeting point of God and humankind. The symbolism of these plagues, often lost on us, would have been immediately apparent to the Egyptians. Two things now become clear. The first is why the Egyptian magicians declared this is the finger of God only after the third plague, lice. The first two plagues wouldn't have surprised them at all. They would have understood them as the work of Egyptian deities who they believed were sometimes angry with the people and took revenge. The second thing that we realize is that quite different symbolism. The first two plagues were meant to have for the Israelites and for us. As with the 10th plague, these were no mere miracles intended to demonstrate the power of the God of Israel, as if religion were a gladiatorial arena in which the strongest God wins. Their meaning was moral. They represented the most fundamental of all ethical principles stated in, in Bereshit, he who sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Retributive justice, measure for measure, means as you do, so you shall be done to. By first ordering the midwives to kill all male Israelite babies, and then, when that failed, by commanding every boy who is born must be cast into the Nile, Pharaoh had turned what should have been symbols of life, the Nile which fed Egyptian agriculture and the midwives into agents of death. The river that turned to blood and the Hecate-like frogs that infested the land weren't afflictions as such, but rather coded communications. As if to say to the Egyptians, reality has an ethical structure. See what it feels like when the gods you turned against the Israelites turn against you. If used for evil ends, the powers of nature will turn against human beings so that what they do will be done to them in turn. There is justice in history. Hence the tenth plague to which all the others were a mere prelude. Unlike all the other plagues, its significance was disclosed to Moses even before he set out on his mission while he was still living with Jethro in Midian. Says God, you shall say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my son, my firstborn. I've told you to let my son go, that he may worship me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your own firstborn son. Whereas the first two plagues were 
symbolic representations of the Egyptian murder of Israelite children, the tenth plague was the enactment of retributive justice, as if heaven were saying to the Egyptians, you committed or supported or accepted passively the murder of innocent children. There's only one way you'll ever realize the wrong you did, namely if you yourself suffer what you did to others. This too helps to explain the difference between the two words the Torah regularly uses to describe what God did in Egypt. Otot umoftim, signs and wonders. These two words aren't two ways of describing the same thing, miracles. They describe quite different things. A mofit, a wonder, is indeed a miracle. But an ot, a sign, is something else. It's a symbol, a coded communication, a message. The significance of the ninth plague is now obvious. The greatest god in the Egyptian pantheon was Ra, or Re, the sun god. The name of the pharaoh, often associated with the Exodus, Ramses II, means Messes, son of, as in Moses, Messes. But he, Ramses, was the son of Ra, the god of the sun. Ramses, the child of the sun god. Egypt, so its people believed, was ruled by the sun. Its human ruler or pharaoh was semi-divine, the child of the sun god. In the beginning of time, according to Egyptian myth, the sun god ruled together with Nun, the primeval waters, or Nun, the primeval waters. Eventually, there were many deities. Ra then created human beings from his tears, seeing, however, that they were deceitful, he sent the goddess Hathor to destroy them. Only a few survived. The plague of darkness was not a mofet, but an ot. It was a sign. The obliteration of the sun signaled that there is a power greater than Ra. Yet what the plague represented was less the power of God over the sun, but rather the rejection by God of a civilization that turned one man, Pharaoh, into an absolute ruler, the son of the sun god, with the ability to enslave other human beings, and of a culture that could tolerate the murder of children because that is what Ra himself did. When God told Moses to say to Pharaoh, my son, my firstborn Israel, he was saying, I am the God who cares for his children, not one who kills his children. The ninth plague was a divine act of communication that said there is not only physical darkness but also moral darkness. The best test of, an, of a civilization is to see how it treats children, its own and others. In an age of broken families, neglected and impoverished children, and worse, the use of children as instruments of war, that is a lesson we still need to learn. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening. You can download a written version of my commentary and explore all my additional content by visiting www.rabbisax.org. 
This year, we also have an accompanying family edition of Covenant and Conversation aimed at connecting children and teenagers with these ideas and thoughts. For a family edition discussion sheet on this week's parasha, please go to www.rabbisax.org/cc family edition. Thank you.